welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. We will be bringing you another season soon. But in the meantime, I'm back with weekly updates on various aspects of climate accountability and occasionally with some book recommendations and interviews related to them. Like today, I have joining me Jake Biddle. He's a journalist for Grist, and he also had a book come out just a couple months ago about internal migration in the U.S. caused by climate change. It's called The Great Displacement. It's a great book. I'll stick a link to it in the show notes. Jake talked to me about all kinds of things he discovered while reporting this book, and it's pretty fascinating stuff. That conversation is coming up after this quick break. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Jake Piddle. Okay, I want you to start by kind of setting the stakes for people. I feel like we hear lots of numbers bandied about around climate migration. So in terms of internal migration within the U.S. driven by climate, what kinds of numbers are we seeing right now in the projections? Right, so the, the most recent numbers suggest that each year, you know, upwards of a million and closer in the past few years to two or three million people are displaced from their homes for any amount of time by a climate disaster, right? And so the vast majority of those people end up pretty quickly moving back to their homes, the original homes, once they Mm -hmm. can repair the damage or once the immediate disaster is over. But a substantial number do not. And we don't really know what that number is, but it's probably safe to say that tens of thousands of people every year end up having to spend, you know, at least a year out of their home or they end up moving to a different home eventually. So the cumulative toll of this displacement over the next few decades is going to get pretty large. You know, you could imagine that in multiple millions of people over the next few decades, certainly by the middle of the century, will have made a permanent relocation, you know, as a result of of either pressure from a climate disaster or what's even harder to gauge, you know, they make a voluntary movement away from a vulnerable area, you know, to avoid a future disaster. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that played into my decision to leave. Yeah, I'm sure. And I know a few other people who also, because we had, it wasn't the snow. (laughs) It was like we had multiple summers in a row of being trapped inside by smoke from fires. Uh, Like my kids' school started to have more smoke days than snow days, which was really 
just brutal. Yeah, was it the Caldor fire that was all around that all yes. around Tahoe for a few weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah, we actually evacuated twice because of that fire. So, like oh. the first time was just the smoke got so bad that like it was um, you know, like my kids were complaining about their eyes hurting inside the house, even with all the windows closed. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, most of Tahoe's housing stock was like built in the 1970s and never touched since. So it's right. not like we had really great, you know, seals on our windows. Mm-hmm. And stuff. So I kind of was like, oh, I guess we could just leave for a few days to get a break from the smoke. That would probably be good. And since, you know, we're able to do that, we should. Yeah. So we did. And then the second was actually like, they were worried it was going to kind of like tear up the west shore of the lake so they were advising everyone in west and north tahoe to evacuate mm-hmm. um, so it wasn't like running from a fire right. is, i don't know i feel like people have this idea that it's like that it's always like disaster or not disaster emergency right. emergency and like a lot of people end up you know leaving for either a short period of time or forever just because of like a, a building of it you know yeah definitely Definitely. So anyway, I want to have you talk about some of the things that you heard from folks about how they make the decision to stay or leave, both temporarily and more permanently. Right. Yeah. I think this is this was a really interesting and kind of surprising part of the reporting process for the book is that I guess I had kind of assumed when I started that there would be a kind of, you know, psychological shift that took place in most people where as the risks got larger and more frequent, they would you know, decide that they were more afraid of staying than they were, you know, hesitant to leave and find a new home. That was certainly true for a lot of people. But I think there was this whole other set of push and pull factors, which were primarily financial, that I don't think I considered at the start, right? So the availability uh, and extent to which someone had bought homeowners insurance or flood insurance in flood prone areas was like a prime driver of whether they had the resources to rebuild the same kind of home that they lived in before. And then the ambient sort of level of housing shortage in a place was really, really important for renters, right? So Mm -hmm. in places like Northern California, if there's a wildfire that destroys hundreds or thousands of housing units, uh, the rents go up precipitously overnight. And people, even if their homes didn't actually get destroyed in the fire, uh, they can't find a place to rent that's yeah. anywhere near affordable and they have to leave. So there's these whole... <laughs> this is exactly what happened to me. I like right. I, My landlord decided to sell the house that we were renting mm-hmm. and or maybe move a family member in. I don't know. He right. wanted to sell, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. right after the Caldor fire. Right, right, right. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, there's nothing that we can find yeah. that's less than $4,000 a month. This wow. is ridiculous. Yeah, and I think like... Like the most people that I spoke to who ended up having to move or choosing to move, it all seems to exist on a spectrum between having to move and choosing to move. But mm-hmm. I guess I was sort of surprised about how, you know, their attitudes about leaving kind of existed in this this limbo where some of them didn't really think that they were leaving for good. Some of them yeah. didn't want to leave, but they were going to leave. Some of them still thought of themselves as people who would never leave, even as they had to kind of come to grips with the fact that maybe they weren't coming back. I think I had sort of imagined there would be a binary between people who chose to stay and people who chose to leave. And there was really not. And the financial pressure of the post-disaster world, you know, really was the main factor, I think, that made it impossible for people to stay, even when they thought that they would not leave. 
That's so interesting. I, I mean, it makes total sense when you say it, but yeah, I think a lot of of times you hear about it in this kind of stay or go binary. Okay. I want to talk about climate gentrification and this way that black and brown people in particular are getting pushed into more disaster prone zones. I think the first time I heard the term climate gentrification was in Miami. And I just had this image in my head of people being literally pushed into the sea. So yeah, I'm curious to hear about what you saw in your reporting on that. Yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. I think that that case study in Miami has been really, really influential for the way that a lot of people see the problem. And it's certainly true that many of the highest elevated areas in Miami have historically been areas of quite low property values, home to black and brown communities. That And now there's like a substantial displacement pressure going on in those communities. Now, whether the developers are actively trying to make investments on high ground, I mean, they'll tell you that they're not and they just think it's a good place to gentrify, mm-hmm. which in many respects it actually is. It's like right next to the other gentrified neighborhoods. But I mean, it's hard to imagine that they don't have the ability to look at a map you know, and, and see <laughs> what's going to happen. But yes. I think that there's this whole other set of pressures that I think you could call gentrification pressures, right? Like what I was talking about before in Northern California and, yeah. and also in, in other parts of Florida where as financial interests, like insurance companies and mortgage lenders try to reduce their exposure, you know, they reduce the total available supply of, of credit and insurance coverage. And that increases a lot of pressure, financial pressure on lower middle class and middle class homeowners in particular. Renters have a really hard time of it all the time. But I think that there's a kind of specific gentrification pressure that's happening, especially in Florida with windstorm and flood insurance, where a lot of homeowners can no longer keep up with the financial burden of paying insurance and keeping that coverage. And it's sort Mm -hmm. of like pushing people out of the threshold of homeownership already, especially in parts of Miami where windstorm insurance has gotten extremely expensive. I think this is like a kind of invisible climate gentrification pressure that we don't always hear about because it's not quite so graphic and visible, but yeah. the, the risks are getting transferred onto uh, homeowners and residents of these places. And that's like really, really hard for a lot of people to bear. And it pushes people out of those areas. Yeah. I know that in California, as insurers kind of stopped offering really any fire insurance at all, or really raised premiums to the point that people couldn't afford them, the state kind of stepped in, which is obviously not necessarily sustainable in the long term. Are you seeing that in other states as well? Like states kind of getting in on the insurance game as a way to to mitigate that impact? Yeah. Yeah. In Florida and Louisiana, which have both seemed sort of downward spirals in their homeowners insurance markets thanks to the hurricanes. The state has gotten involved, sort of bailed out insurers that are collapsing. And then in Florida, they pumped like a bunch of money uh, into what's called reinsurance to help the insurers themselves get insurance. Mm. And then they also produced all these different legislative reforms to try to stabilize the system. And in California, I think in particular, there's a lot of interest in, in regulating the way that insurers can choose to set prices. Not so much in Florida and Louisiana, probably for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But in California, the state has said, you know, if a homeowner takes steps to make her home more resilient to wildfire, then the insurer has to offer them a discount rate. You know, you have to take that into account uh, when you set the price of premiums. I think that's like 
it's the, probably the best policy that the state really has the legal authority to do, I think, or one of the best. And it should incentivize homeowners to do some of this. And hopefully the burdens are not so much that people just can't afford to pay the money up front, but mm-hmm. it would lead to some big discounts. Um, yeah. And I think that, that you're going to have to see probably more that kind of policy in order to prevent like a, a serious collapse in one of these markets, which we haven't quite seen yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about a term that I find to be terrifying because it sounds mm-hmm. so boring and bureaucratic, but it is like kind of a major deal. And that is managed retreat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like every time I hear that term, I think of people like slowly running and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is like a very sanitized term for something that's often, you know, very, very painful. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious just, well, A, I want to have you define this term for people. And then I want to hear more about what you saw around that, you know, kind of across the country where people are at with this idea, you know, where are there local governments that are actually trying to plan how, you know, how it gets managed. I know like sometimes when it it gets mentioned in any kind of official way, like, you know, property values plummet and Mm -hmm. get really worried about that too. So yeah, yeah, I'm curious to hear um, what you saw on that front. Yeah. Yeah. So manage retreat is, as you said, the kind of sanitized term for the government, a state-sponsored, you know, relocation of people away from the most flood-prone or disaster-prone areas, or I guess relocation of people, buildings, or infrastructure, right? So any kind of, you know, if you're moving the wastewater treatment plant back from the ocean, or if you're tearing down a neighborhood and giving people money to move elsewhere, that's all under the sort of umbrella of managed retreat. I think that the main way that this has happened in the United States so far is through this FEMA's home buyout program, where basically FEMA will give a local jurisdiction, a city or county money to pay everyone in a certain area to leave or offer them the opportunity to leave. Really, it's not a mandatory program. FEMA gives you money, you leave your house, you find another house, and then FEMA tears down your house, or the the county really tears down your house, and then they've removed a structure from the floodplain. And that, you know, they've reduced their future risk of flooding. And they've also reduced your future risk of flooding, hopefully. Um, this is like, in theory, right, it's one of the the most cost effective and really like the most sort of forward looking tools we have to adapt to climate change, right? You can build a levy, you know, X feet, Y feet, Z feet, there's always potential risk that another flood will overtop it in the future. But if you make sure that you move somebody away from the, the water, then, you know, chances are, if there's no home there, the home can't flood, right? And so, like, in theory, this this looks, you know, pretty good as a last resort option in places where there's either no money to adapt, you know, to build these structures or where, for some reason, we feel like it's not worth it, like the dangers are just too extensive. The problem and what I found in the book is that almost everywhere that this happens, uh, it turns out to be <laughs> really ugly and uh, to leave people in quite a bit of pain so I, I wrote about like a test case of this in Eastern North Carolina. There was this community called Lincoln City. It was a historic African-American community right on the banks of this river on land that was sort of considered worthless by the, the white planters who had dominated the area in the late 19th century. And the government, after two hurricanes, came in and said, we would like to give you all money to leave. We're never going to build a levee around you. We're never going to help you elevate your homes because they're not worth enough. 
everyone basically took the offer. They left. This community was, you know, raised in two years and now they're all scattered around and they still retain very painful memories of like the government coming in ton and they had to leave this place that was really the only place that, that had ever felt like home for them. And this has happened all over the country. Some places people are okay with leaving, you know, but other places, especially black communities where there's not enough home values in the government's eyes to justify, you know, the expense of flood protection. This mm -hmm. is often a really painful process. And it's just sort of like, it's one of these things where, you know, a lot of adaptation experts and sort of planners see it as a really, really sound tool for adapting. And, and to a certain extent it is, but it comes with all kinds of implications for racial and economic justice that we really haven't begun to, to tease out yet. Well, yeah. I mean, we haven't figured out how to build housing or approach development in an equitable way, period. Right. So the idea that we're going to do managed retreat in an equitable way seems really implausible, unfortunately. But I also think like, you know, kind of leaving it to a disaster to take care of has similar impacts. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least at least in the case of you know, a managed retreat policy, you could, in theory, design a policy that that works better than the one that they have currently does, right? Like, so the buyout program, you just get a check for the pre-flood market value of your house, right? So for a lot of people, that's not a sufficient payment for them to find another house they can afford in the same area. You know, like if you got a buyout right now in, in Austin, Texas, which they've tried to do in the past, you know, there's no home you could could afford for the amount that your previous home probably cost because costs have risen so much. But you could, in theory, design a program that would include like a top-up, for instance, or a long-term relocation stipend to help people make up that difference. But if you just wait for people's houses to get destroyed and then let them go willy-nilly wherever they want, then you definitely know that it won't work. You know, I mean, there's just no way that that, that will end well for most people. So I think like buyouts are like a good start and there's a way that it could be done well. It's just that it's not being done well right now. But yeah, I mean, manage retreat, probably preferable to unmanage retreat if you have to retreat. Right. Have you seen any examples of either a managed retreat policy or other types of mitigation policies that have, have worked well. I know you get into this in the book. I want to have, I want to have you like walk people through, you know, some examples of things that either you've seen actually implemented or you've heard people kind of talk about that sound like they could be, you know, effective solutions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, probably the best example of this working well is in New Jersey. So after uh, hurricane Sandy, the state started this program called blue acres, which is basically like a, they took the FEMA bio program and they expanded it. They staffed up this office that does these individual consultations with homeowners they keep the offer to the homeowner on the table for a long time so the homeowner can really think about it. They, I believe, include some sort of supplementary financial assistance or, you know, connect people with resources that can help them find a new home. They really have approached it from a, a longitudinal, I guess, perspective. Like, it's not just we show up, we give you the money, and we look away. It's that we're sort of guiding the homeowner from the process of making the decision to sell to finding a new home, you know, preferably in the same jurisdiction so that the tax base doesn't suffer and people can maintain their existing social and economic ties. And I think the other example of something that's worked well uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, and this is not a perfect project by any means, but the Obama administration created a grant program. 
the National Disaster Resilience Competition. And this program basically doled out a billion dollars to some communities that wanted to experiment with some climate adaptation projects that had never really been tried before. And in Norfolk, Virginia, they took a pretty flood-prone African-American neighborhood on the banks of this tidal river, and they spent about $150 million retrofitting basically every part of the neighborhood's infrastructure. They built this big grassy berm along the water to stop storm surge flooding. They fixed the entire sewer system and the storm drain system. They created these new parks that sort of function as like tidal estuaries to soak up water. They really took a kind of holistic approach. And it's not perfect by any means. Some people are a little discontented with what it's done to the way that the neighborhood looks, for instance. But for most people, it's created a a massive reduction in flood vulnerability. You know, this was a neighborhood where property values were falling thanks to the the vulnerability. And now they've probably bought the neighborhood 30 to 50 years, depending on sea level rise or, or even longer. And it really does show how with enough money and enough willingness to take apart the way that a neighborhood was built, you know, and redo it from the bottom up, you can kind of control that these impacts that seem really scary on the surface of it. Yeah, that's super interesting. You mentioned one thing that surprised you before, which was the various factors that come into people deciding whether to stay or go. I wonder if there is anything else that was particularly surprising to you as you uh, did the reporting for the book? Yeah, I mean, I think that for many people, this might not be surprising, but I was surprised by how many people moved from one dangerous home to another without necessarily realizing what it was that they were doing. Especially in Houston, a lot of people took buyouts or they decided to move after a big hurricane and they ended up doing you know, really what I think the government would really not have wanted to, them to do. They they moved, they took the money and they moved to another flood zone because there was no long-term monitoring of what happened mm-hmm. with these buyouts. And then other places, people moved from, this is surprising to me, but it's not really surprising when you think about it. Like a lot, I talked to a lot of people who moved from New Orleans to Arizona, you know, after Katrina, or they moved from, from Houston to Northern California to a very fire-prone area. And it seems like people's, you know, they, their psychology is really affected by what they've experienced. People mm. don't really assess, you know, risk from a neutral ground. You know, they don't really see, okay, what is a place that's free of risk? They just want protection from the the trauma that they've already experienced in most cases, right? And so mm. I did speak to people who left Houston after flood and went to California and got an RV there and then the RV burned down in a fire. And there's just things, stories like this that are like, it, I think it's sort of emphasized for me that you can't really divide the United States into places that are safe and places that are not safe. Right. You know, or really the world for that matter, of course. Right. There's, there's only degrees of risk and there's, there's risk and then there's, you know, risk like people in, in Miami face or, or, you know, Greenville or somewhere in the Sierras, but everywhere is, is faces some level of vulnerability. And so I think everywhere has, the risk of descending into this kind of like housing instability that I sort of tried to document in the places where I went. Yeah. What are some of the things that U.S. either federal or state government officials could learn or or maybe have learned are learning from the kind of cross-border climate migration stuff? Are there applicable lessons there for, for internal migration? Oh, that's really interesting. I had never thought of it that way. And I kind of feel like 
I guess in the, at the end of the book, I kind of said the opposite, which is where I was like, I basically said that, you know, in this country, we don't really have even the beginnings of a plan to deal with international climate migration. It all gets routed through the immigration system and the asylum system, which are so deeply broken yep. and they're fucked up and there's nobody who even wants to start trying to fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me, the, the lessons of the few places where we have done internal climate migration successfully have really demonstrated that you kind of have to have not only, you know, a really, really robust post-disaster recovery system where you're staying with people for a long period of time and making sure that they get back on their feet, you know, three, four, five years after a disaster. Mm -hmm. But you also have to sort of get your own house in order, so to speak. It's really hard to make sure that there's no climate displacement unless you make sure that there's no housing displacement. And right. so like a program like Section 8 or a social housing program, I sort of say at the end that those are like a really necessary second or third step to solving this problem because, you know, people who are displaced by climate disasters end up in the same cycle of, you know, displacement and relocation as people who just get displaced from, from normal, so to speak, financial pressure. And so right. that lesson I thought was really important when you think about international climate migration, which is like, if you think of all these displaced people as existing on a kind of continuum, the solution to both of them is kind of the same, which is like the the jurisdictions, the countries that have the most money and that have the legacy responsibility for carbon emissions need to, the state needs to take a really, really strong role in ensuring that there is like safe, affordable housing for everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Yeah. And the border thing is getting in the way of even acknowledging that, even the beginnings, the twinkling of an acknowledgement of that because yeah. this political roadblock is standing in the way of that. So that's kind of how I was thinking about it. But the way you said it is really interesting, too. I, well, yeah, I mean, the U.S. is obviously not great on this, but I, do, I wonder if anywhere is good on it mm. and like, uh, could potentially be, you know, you know <laughs> providing lessons that mm. we can learn from. I don't know. I don't know the answer. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I, gosh, it's really hard for me to think of an example. Well, okay, here's actually an example that I've always found really interesting. And it was going to be a big part of the book, and then it wasn't because I didn't have enough space and yeah. it just didn't work out. But so in the 1980s, the United States conducted nuclear tests on the Marshall Islands right. in the Pacific. And they gave people unlimited ability. They gave Marshallese unlimited ability to come to the United States. And right. many people did, and they ended up in Arkansas, in Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. In Oklahoma. There's like pretty thriving Marshallese communities in those places. Yeah. And um, now that sea level rise has been a big, started to become a big factor for the Marshallese, another generation of Marshallese has started to come to those same communities. And they're used, taking advantage of the same legal authority, I believe, to end up in the same places. And I think that this is like really telling where it's like once you take away the restriction of the border, people have the ability to not only, you know, get away from the, the big risks, right? But they end up being able to, I mean, it's not that those communities in Arkansas and Oklahoma are free from any kind of struggle, but they end up kind of being able to build something new once yeah. you remove that, that blockage and once you don't make them go through the, you know, terrifying rigmarole of asylum claims, et cetera. Well, and they end up able to rebuild communities. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so I think that like, this is an example of something it's, you know, this is like 0.01% of 
the total population of people who would need to move because of climate change. But I think it does show that there's kind of nothing to be afraid of, I guess, was my conclusion there is like, I think a lot of times the numbers, you know, 500 million or a billion people moving get kind of bandied about as this terrifying, you know, horde that's going to show up at the United States border or in, in Europe, you know, trying to seek us out. But I, I really don't think that there's anything scary about it. And I think that if you just, it seems like if you provide people with the right amount of support and you don't put these things in their way, you end up actually with, with potentially eventually positive impacts, both, you know, for the communities and for the people where they live from this kind of movement from, you know, a risky area to a safer area. Yeah. Kind of along those lines too. I'm curious what you have seen in terms of the potential intersection between eco-fascism and climate migration. Like I know I was like, someone just sent me this in, insane video last month from a group called progressives for immigration reform oh no where they're this is in the u.s yes in the u.s i'll send you the video it's wild they are basically saying like if you care about climate and conservation then you should be pushing for tighter immigration controls because like all of these people coming into the U.S. will increase the population, which will be bad for mm. the environment and for uh, climate action. And all that. <laughs> That's really funny because it kind of implies that they won't be part of yeah. the population if they aren't in the United States. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, That's right. That's right. But also, it's just this thing that, like, yeah. you know, everyone kind of knew was going to happen. And now it's yeah. happening of, like, people going from saying climate change isn't real to now using it as a reason to be anti-immigration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is far from my strongest subject area. Like my colleague Gabby Del Valle has done a ton of work on this. Yeah. I think Brendan O'Connor has as well. Oh, but yeah. I do think that like there's there's a substantial risk of this becoming a mainstream political position. Yeah. And I think that like to me, this is maybe a really, <laughs> this is maybe a really inapt comparison, but I've always sort of thought of it in the same vein as like the way that a lot of progressive people will become really, really nimby-ish when there's some kind of affordable housing project that's going to be built near them or like a homeless shelter. There's this tendency, right, of people who have theoretically liberal political views, once there's like a change in their local environment, they become really vile. Uh, and really opposed to any kind of like thing that could improve other people's welfare by, you know, slightly changing the way it looks where they live. I'm not sure that that isn't what goes on in part when people are, you know, use conservation or climate risk as a, a weapon to kind of um, bludgeon away all kinds of like social policies or inclusivity or, you know, uh, accommodation of other people. And yeah. like, I mean, it feels like eco-fascism is not part of the mainstream political conversation in the U.S. right now, but I feel like it certainly could be, right? Yeah. And it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't be, you know, if the sort of trajectory of international climate migration continues the way that it is. But yeah. I mean, right now, it's hard to imagine our immigration controls getting much stricter in the United States. I mean, they're already really damn strict. And yeah. we just don't really think of immigration and climate change is being connected. But mm. I think that if we ever did, there would be a <laughs> substantial downside because people could come to the precise wrong conclusion 
uh, by connecting those things. And that's something to look out for. And that I, I kind of dread the day that people do start to put those things in conversation because I think it's going to lead to more things like that, that video that you, that you mentioned. That's what's so scary about the way that those um, theoretical statistics of future migration are, are discussed. I think that that Alexander Tempest has written about this as well. Right. And I think she's argued, and I pretty much agree that they're not really useful numbers. Like you can't just add that number to the population of the United States. And then, well, this is how many people, like it's not useful. And I think a a really serious way to know the numbers or to think about, you know, the potential influx of people or the potential population growth. Like I think it can really only be weaponized for, for negative ends. And I think that like, we have to start, I guess that's sort of why I said like getting our own house in order. Like, I think we just have to think through the implications of what it would mean to take care of everyone who's displaced by climate change. And then not so much try to like schedule, you know, this kind of influx of people, but just think about what would, what would a benign policy look like for any number of people, right? including the ones who already live here, right? Like, let's just imagine we're trying to, to keep track of everyone and keep safe everyone who already lives here. And then like, let's try to, expand that out you know but don't right. really do that well for current citizens right so it's like yeah i think it's i think it's a little it's a little like rich in, in a negative way to to be like oh we can't handle all the like it's not really the question is can we handle it it's not really the, the question at all yeah well and i think to your point about you know shoring up housing availability and affordability and access and all of those things across the board in general could also mitigate some of the potential for anti-immigration sentiment. Because I I feel like the number one thing that you often hear is like, well, I don't have access to a house, so why should I care about giving this person who's not even from here an apartment or whatever, you know? Right. So like, again, sort of just taking care of people, good move across the board. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really true. The reasons people cite for why we couldn't in, absorb a lot of people in the United States are the same, like those shortcomings are shortcomings that we actually should solve. But right. they're not really a reason to, <laughs> to not let people in, especially when you consider what it is that they're trying to leave behind. Drilled is an original Critical Frequency production. Our producer is Sarah Ventry, Sound design, mixing, and mastering are by Peter Duff, who also wrote our original score. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton at the First Amendment Project. And the show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Amy Westervelt. 